at gas stations. You know how like pumping your tires full of air it used to be free, right? But now it costs something. It's like a dollar, dollar and fifty, and I think I figured it out. It's because of inflation. <laughs> I also realized I used to uh, I used to hate facial hair, but then it grew on me. Saturdays and Sundays are by far my favorite days of the week. You know why? They're, they're so strong because all the other days are weekdays. I saw a man fall down a well the other day. I don't think he saw that well. <laughs> How much more of this can you take? One more. One more. I really like golfing. I'm gonna go golfing in a couple weeks. I'm very excited about that, but I've learned that I need to bring an extra pair of socks in case I get a hole in one. Boom! That's it. That's what you do, right? You, gotta, you, you, you make people cringe with an onslaught of bad dad jokes, and then, you, and then you say, hey, let's talk about something of substance. Anything, anything of substance. Let's talk about spiritual gifts. Uh, that's what we're talking about uh, today, and we've been talking about this for the last couple of months. Uh, to recap the situation, so uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. In the city of Corinth, uh, the Christians there have, uh, have, have exalted this one gift of the Spirit, the gift of speaking in tongues, and they have been misusing this gift, in fact. They have misunderstood this, and, uh, and they are using it to the detriment of others. And, and so Paul uh, gives them these instructions. And it's important to realize Paul does not say, that's it, no more Holy Spirit for you. No more spiritual gifts for you. Instead, he gives them, he gives them a perspective. He gives them teaching to say, this is how you should think about these gifts. He gives them principles in chapter 12 and 13. He talks about how these gifts are given for the common good, how the church is the body of Christ, how we are to, to treat one another with this agape love. And then he takes all of that and he applies it to the, to the topic of speaking in tongues. And at the beginning of chapter 14, and, and in the end, Paul says, look, when the church is gathered together, uh, we are to edify one another. We're to build one another up. So he says, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, this next, in this next section of 1 Corinthians 14, his focus shifts a little bit. He's been talking about how these gifts play out in our relationships with other believers. Now he's going to talk about how these gifts play out in relationships with, with those who aren't believers, those who are maybe coming to a, a church service, to a worship service for the first time. They don't know what this is about. What, what, what effect do these spiritual gifts have on people like that? So that's, uh, that's what Paul's going to talk about. Let's, let's get into it. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. He says, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. And so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And so, Lord, that's our prayer today, that, that what takes place here 
would cause us to say, God, you are really among us here. I pray we would know that, God, today, that in our own, in our own lives, in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would move in us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us and comfort us and that we would go out from this place different than we were when we came in because of the power of your word. Lord, we pray that you would move, that you would become greater and that we would would be lesser as we focus on you, as we set our hearts on you, Lord. We pray that you would be all in all today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so this is a shorter text. We're just going to take this piece by piece, verse, verse by verse. So verse 20, Paul starts out by saying, Grow up, Corinthians. Time to stop thinking like children. Time to start thinking like adults. And this is ironic in Corinth because the Corinthians believed that they were grown up. They believed that they were spiritual, like really, really super spiritual. And this came out in a number of ways. It came out right here in this whole area of speaking in tongues. They were like, look at us. We can do this thing. We can speak in angelic tongues. Look at this. It also came out in, uh, in chapter 7. There are women, married women in the church in Corinth who seem to think that it is spiritual to abstain from sex in their, in their marriage. That this is somehow, that that activity is inherently unspiritual. And so Paul is counseling them about that. 1 Corinthians 15, you've got believers in Corinth who want to deny the physical resurrection. That this is our eternal destiny, is, is new bodies. Because again, to them, it's more spiritual to think that our souls will just kind of float up above the clouds with the angel babies after we die. And so Paul is, is getting at this and saying, look, you guys think you have surpassed me. You think you have matured by thinking this way. Let me tell you, the opposite is true. He writes to them in, in uh, chapter 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Paul says, you you think that you're so spiritual, that you have advanced beyond me. In fact, you are still infants because spiritual maturity is not defined by pursuing some disembodied mysticism. It's not defined by doing yoga. It's not defined by eating granola all the time or eating vegan or whatever. Spiritual maturity is defined by Christ-likeness. And so Paul right away says, look, there's quarreling and division and, and, and fighting among you. That's the evidence that you're still children, that you're thinking about your relationships with one another is still of this world and instead of according to God's word. So you, you've got to grow up. It's time to mature. Grow up in your thinking. See, it's, it's cute when when kids say things that indicate they see the world um, in a way that is, is not true, right? Like uh, a couple years ago, I remember one of our kids was really afraid of dying. And you know why she was, I, oh, I wasn't going to say who it was. I was just going to leave it vague. You know why this uh, ambiguous child of mine uh, was afraid of dying? Because of the dirt that would get in her eyes. It was kind of like heartbreaking, right? But it was like, this was her great fear about dying. The dirt, when she gets buried, that'll get in her eyes. I don't know if you've seen uh, videos of kids answering the question, how do, uh, how do babies get made? Where do they come from? Uh, I have not asked my kids this because, frankly, I don't want to have to explain it to them yet. I don't want them to go, well, how do they? So I don't, I don't even ask it. But I watch the video, and these kids are like, 
you buy them from the hospital for $10. And another kid's like, well, mommy eats a seed and that helps her hatch the babies. And another one, and most of them say, well, babies come when mommies and daddies kiss each other. That's the, that's the main thing. And that's, that's cute when kids are, are kids. But if you've got a fully grown adult who thinks that kids come through, you know, from space through rocket ships or that their greatest fear of dying is because dirt's going to get in their eyes, you would say to them, well, I think... I think it's time to grow up a little bit. I think it's time to mature in your thinking. And, and so what Paul says here is, is a general word to, uh, to believers, that, that we need to be maturing in our thinking. And, and this is so important. I can't emphasize this often enough, that too many followers of Jesus are complacent. They're apathetic. They've reached a, a certain point and they've kind of said, okay, I'm good now. I've learned enough. I've grown enough. You know, I'm satisfied. I've kind of crossed the line of, of you know, to become a Christian. And now, now I can just kind of coast. Again, it's like, like Zachary right now. He's in kindergarten. And he is, is learning how to read some basic words, right? Which is exciting. You know, you can read a few words, little three or four letter, letter words. But again, if he's, if he's in grade four and the only sentence he can read is like the cat and the hat, I'm, I'm concerned about that. Like, he needs to keep on growing. So too many Christians are, they've got the bare-bone basics. Let me tell you, you will not run out of room for growth in this life. Your capacity for maturity will not be maxed out. There will always be more to know of God. There will always be more to understand about his word. There will always be more in your life that needs to be conformed to his character. You will not get maxed out in this life. And then you've got other believers, and it's, it's even more tragic because it's not that they've just gotten stuck. It's that they've actually gone backwards. They were once maturing, but instead they, they have reverted back to infancy. They have, they have gone away from conforming their lives to the word of God and instead conform to the ways of thinking and living in, in the world. They're like spiritual Benjamin Buttons. You know, Benjamin Button is born old and then gets younger the longer he lives. Some Christians are like that, where they were once there and now they've reverted. They've, they've gone back to infancy. And so again, just Paul is saying, grow up. Keep growing up. Keep maturing. Now, of course, it's not just a general word. He says in verse 20, he's applying it specifically to the topic of speaking in tongues, to, the, to spiritual gifts. And, uh, and he doesn't even just do this as a general, hey, you need to mature in your thinking about these things, but he's setting up a quote from Isaiah. Uh, verse 21, he, he, uh, he quotes Isaiah. He says, In the law it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, what I want to do is I actually want to take us, do a bit of a deep dive into the context of Isaiah 28, which is what's being quoted here, because this, I think this is really cool, has everything to do with what we're talking about. And this, uh, I, I, I'll just give credit to, uh, to a student in, our, in my master's degree, my graduate studies, who wrote a paper on this exact one verse and looked at Isaiah 28, and I read this paper, I was like, whoa, that's what's going on here. So I don't know who it was, because the professor gave it to us 15 years later, but I'll give credit to that unnamed student here. Um, Isaiah 28, Isaiah is speaking. So Isaiah prophesies 700 years or so BC, 700 years or so before Christ. And he's talking about the leaders of the people of Israel. And he says about the leaders in Israel, look, you are full of yourselves, you have exalted yourselves, 
but you are soon going to be trampled underfoot like, like a flower. He says, look, the leaders of Israel, they, uh, they get drunk on wine and beer. They, they stagger around. They make their decisions, their, their judgments while intoxicated. They cover the tables with their, with their filth, and, uh, and not, not a single spot is, is clean from their, from their vomit, which is what, what an appealing image that is, hey? Just thinking about tables covered in vomit. That's what Isaiah would have you think about. He says, that's what, that's what the leaders of Israel are like. And, and so this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is his response. This is, uh, this is Isaiah saying, look, there's going to be judgment be, because of this. Um, that because you have exalted yourselves, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, um, there's going to be judgment. So this is Isaiah's clear word to the people of Israel. This is how they respond in verses 9 and 10. People of Israel say, who is he trying to teach? Speaking about Isaiah. To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. This is what the leaders of Israel are saying. Look, Isaiah, what are you, what are you talking about? We're, we're sophisticated. We're, we're adults. You're speaking to us like children. That last part, the whole uh, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that. If, if you have a physical Bible with you, which I heartily recommend, uh, you might see at the bottom a footnote that kind of says this translation is uncertain. And it's uncertain because all of those words are, are likely meaningless Hebrew sounds. It goes, I think it's Savlasav, Savlasav, Kavlakov, Kavlakov is what it is in Hebrew. And what it is probably is, is, is baby talk. So you know when somebody comes up to you and they go, ooh, coochie, coochie, coo. Aren't you a cute little boy? Yes, you are. Someone does that to you as an adult, what do you, you want to punch them in the face, right? Like that's just super annoying. But it's like this, this gibberish, you know, as if I'm some infant, and that's what the leaders of Israel are saying. That's, that's, what, that's what Isaiah sounds like to them. He's just speaking gibberish. He's talking below them. How, how dare he? Doesn't he know how, who we are? And so God has given his clear word of warning. You got to turn from that or face judgment. They say, we're, we're above this. You're speaking gibberish to us. And this is Isaiah's response. Verses 11 and 13. He says, very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is my resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. So this is what Isaiah's response is. Look, you guys think that this is gibberish? Well, let me tell you that because you have rejected the clear word of God, you actually are going to hear gibberish. You are going to hear strange tongues and foreign languages. The thing that you've been accusing Isaiah of is actually going to happen to you. And it's going to come in the form, in the context of Isaiah, it's going to come in the form of the Assyrian Empire that is going to sweep into Israel... They're going to destroy the cities. They're going to haul the Israelites into exile. 
This is going to happen in about 722 BC. And so uh, Paul, or sorry, Isaiah is saying that those strange tongues and languages of the Assyrians that you hear is the sign of God's judgment. You rejected the clear word of prophecy while you had a chance. You rejected that. You were supposed to be a place of resting. You're supposed to be a people of healing. You had this glorious responsibility. You rejected that. And so this is the consequence, is that you will hear strange tongues and languages, and that will solidify your separation from God. Now that helps explain why Paul says what he does in verse 22. And it's, it's, I know this is a bit confusing, but I hope, you'll, I hope this will make sense of it. Paul says, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. See, when, when Isaiah speaks the clear word of prophecy, that is a sign that it's not too late, the, that Israel can still turn from that. God is speaking to them. He's warning them. They can still turn from that. But when they hear the strange lips, the, the foreign tongues, that is now a sign that they are, they are, they, they are outside of, of God's favor. Paul says, he, he, ta he talks about it as a sign. Now, what is a sign? You know, when I was a kid, I, I had really, I'd really hoped that my dad wasn't stealing from his job as a traffic cop. But when I came home, I, all the signs were there. That's the last dad joke, I promise. That's the last dad joke. That's the last one. Okay, so what is a sign, biblically speaking? That has nothing to do with that at all. What is a sign, biblically speaking? It is an indication of God's judgment, whether positive or negative, okay? So prophecy is a sign, it's an indication of God's positive attitude about his favor towards a group of people. That you, even if you're going astray, I'm speaking to you, I'm calling you back, you're still my people. But, but tongues are a sign, an indication of God's negative attitude to say, look, you have had so many chances, you've rejected them, so this is now, this is now the consequence. Does that make sense? Are you, are you with me so far? Now look at how Paul applies this to the gift of tongues. Verse 23, he says, So if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? What Paul is, is saying here, well, first of all, let, let's, look, let's, look at it. let's look at a few things that we learn from this about the early church. It's kind of interesting, right? He, he, Paul imagines that the whole church is, uh, is gathered together. Because in the first century, of course, they, they didn't have church buildings like this. They, uh, they met in homes. And generally, uh, a home in first century Corinth could fit maybe 25, 50 people at the most. And, and you had more believers than that in a city. So they were mostly meeting in little house churches, but, but it seems that once in a while, perhaps they could meet all together in a public uh, place of, of some kind. So Paul imagines that all, the whole church in Corinth is together. He imagines that they're all speaking in tongues, and in the next verse, that they're all prophesying, which seems to indicate there was some space given in these early church gatherings for, uh, for inspired speech. We'll talk about that more next week, that kind of space that's given for that. Uh, and then third, Paul imagines that there is an unbeliever or inquirer who comes in. So this is somebody who is curious to know more, somebody who is new to this, somebody who desires to understand what Christians believe. And they're coming into the, 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 the worship meeting, which says that these, these times of corporate worship were open and they were accessible 
to, uh, to anybody. That you didn't have to be a believer in Jesus to be part of, of a, a corporate worship session. And, and that, of course, is the same thing today. That, that we love it when people come in who do not yet know Jesus, who are curious about this, who are thirsty to know about this. This, this is what gives us passion. This is what drives us. We want people to come who are, who are curious, who want to know more. This is a significant aspect of what we do as a church, not only building one another up, but also testifying to the glory of Jesus to others, right? That's a big thing for us. It was a big thing for the church in the first century too. And so Paul says, think about the exercise of those spiritual gifts and how they impact those people those inquirers, those new people? How does it impact them? And this is an important question. We don't, we're not paranoid about what people think about us. We don't, we don't adjust our beliefs based on public opinion polls in society as a whole. We definitely don't do that. But we should be asking, how do we, um, how do we come across to others? And, and are there ways where we don't compromise the gospel, we don't compromise the word, and, and yet that we are able to break down some of those walls? Are there ways in which we can actually draw people nearer to Jesus? And so Paul talks about, well, look at, look at the gift of tongues. If everybody's speaking in tongues and an inquirer comes in, what impact does that have? And through, through Isaiah, Paul says that they are put in the same place as the leaders of Israel. So th this, this is where it really all comes together. I hope you track with me. So, so these inquirers come in and they hear these strange lips and foreign tongues, if everybody's speaking in tongues. We talked about this last week, a good gift given for good purposes in the right setting. But if everybody's speaking in tongues in the corporate gathering and somebody comes in, what do they say? They go, this is crazy. These people are out of their mind and they walk away. They're turned off. Perhaps they write the whole thing off before they've even really had a chance to hear the gospel and respond to it. They are faced with the sign of judgment the moment they walk in. And what Paul is saying is that this is so inappropriate because they are not the same as Israel's leaders. They are not people who have heard clear words of repentance over and over and over and over again. Instead, it's their very first time. They're seeking. They're open to this. And yet you have shut them off from the very beginning. This is unspeakably tragic. It's a bit of a different context. But Jesus says in, in the gospel, he says it's better for someone to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be thrown into the sea than to lead a young believer astray. I mean, the, the care of vulnerable souls is, is sacred. It's weighty. It's a, it's a trust that all of us have to, all of us who, who follow Jesus have to take seriously. You've got, you've got somebody coming in and they're open to this. You don't want to do something to drive them away forever, right? You, you're, you're enacting the sign of judgment when it's not appropriate because they have not yet had a chance to hear the gospel. Is, is that making sense? This is what the inappropriate use of the gift of tongues uh, was, was going to do in Corinth, according to Paul. Again, a good gift in its, in its right context, but in the gathered assembly, this is the effect it can have. Now, Paul says the, the, the situation is very different for prophecy. So again, verse 24 and 25, he says, But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in, while everyone is prophesying, 
They are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. And so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, we've talked about prophecy a few times. We're going to talk about it a little bit more today. I've offered a definition a number of times. Uh, it's not simply making predictions about the future, although it can involve that. One really simple definition of prophecy is that it is a human report of a divine revelation. It's somebody who receives communication from God about something they would not otherwise know, and they share it with, with others. And, uh, and it, can, it can come through, uh, through a vision or a dream, or it can be a voice that's, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but a voice that someone hears in their head that is not, that is not kind of theirs or that, that they would not otherwise know of, and yet they receive this, this word. Now, I want to give you a bunch of examples of this so that you can kind of put some, some flesh on this idea. Uh, one story, a couple biblical stories, actually. John chapter 4. Jesus uh, strikes up this conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. And after a bit of conversation, he says to her, go and get your husband. And, uh, and she says, well, actually, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're, you're right about that. In fact, you have five, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. And, uh, and how, I mean, for this woman, I mean, I know it's, it's Jesus. He knows things. But for this woman, she responds by saying, sir, I, I can see that you are a prophet. Because how else? He, he couldn't know this about her, that she's had five husbands and is living with a man who's not her husband. He's just met her at the well. He couldn't know this by natural human means. Another story. Um, there's a woman in our church who started attending about a year ago and early on received this, um, this word from the Lord about the church. And uh, she, I, don't think, I don't think she could have known this uh, apart from God revealing it to her, but it was very accurate in terms of what was happening with our church coming out of the pandemic. She didn't share it at the time because she was new and didn't know what to do with it. But now a year later, I look back and I go, wow, that's, that, was, that was pretty much right on. Um, John Wimber tells a story in one of his books, and I, I think I've cited this before, but this is just kind of one of the craziest things to me. So he's sitting on an airplane, and he looks across the aisle at the guy sitting uh, next to him, and he sees on this guy's forehead the word adultery. Can you imagine? So he turns back, he's like, I'm seeing things. That's crazy. He looks back, there it is on the man's forehead like a bright flashing sign. What is happening here? And then he hears a word, one name. We'll, we'll say Jessica, just the, the name Jessica comes into his mind. He leans over to this guy and he's like, okay, I, sir, I, I'm, I'm sorry. This, I know this is so weird, but does the name Jessica mean anything to you? This man's sitting next to his wife. His wife's name is not Jessica. And so uh, the man says, okay, let's go to a different part of the plane and talk about this a little bit more. So they go back to the, the back of the plane. The man confesses that, yeah, he's, he's having an affair with a woman named Jessica. And uh, John Wimber there shares the gospel with him, says, this, this, is, this is what happened. Here's who Jesus is. Um, he, he died uh, to, to forgive you for sins like this. He died to bring you life. And the man gives his life to Christ right then and there. They pray together. And the man goes, now, I, I guess I should really confess this to my wife. When should I do that? And John Wimber goes, well, now would be a good time. 
So they go back to the seats, and he, he confesses this to his wife in tears, and his wife gives her life to Christ as well, uh, right there. I mean, just like the craziest plane ride ever, right? I mean, this, this is, in all, of those, in all of those stories, you see that, that prophecy is, is a, again, a communication from, from God, that it is knowledge that somebody could not otherwise have, that it serves to either uh, encourage somebody or draw them near to God in some way. And in a couple of those instances, in the John 4 passage and the John Wimber story, you get this, this, uh, this uh, acknowledgement, this naming of sin that leads people to confession and repentance and faith. And, and that's, what, that's what Paul imagines in verses 24 and 25, that somebody is going to hear prophecy, they are going to be deeply convicted, and the secrets of their heart are going to be laid bare, which does not sound like an enjoyable experience, does it? Because we as humans, we try to keep things hidden. We try to keep things in the dark. We feel ashamed. We don't want people to know. This is the, this is the truth all the way back to Genesis, where Adam and Eve reject the word of God, they listen to the serpent, they take of the fruit, and then what do they do? They realize their nakedness, so they cover themselves up with fig leaves, and then they hide from God, and they try to cover over what they have done. This is what we as humans do. This is the human condition. We keep the things in the dark, but they never get dealt with then. There's never healing. There's never restoration. Which is why Paul in Ephesians 5 says, live as children of light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. You shine a light on stuff, you bring it out into the open where God can deal with it, and it becomes a light. And this is what's happened in verses 24 and 25, is that somebody has come into the, the, the gathering, into the assembly of, of believers as they worship Jesus. They have somehow been deeply convicted about sin. It comes out into the light, and there is healing. There is, there is renewal. They say, surely God is among you. There is this faith in the Lord God. And how could there not be? I mean, imagine, imagine that you had some, and this isn't going to be something that some of you need to imagine. I don't need to prophesy about this. This is going to be true for some of you, that you have come here today and that there is, there is some sin, some darkness, some secret, some event in the past that plagues you and it weighs you down. And, and it causes you to feel this, this desperation, this depression, this, this despair. And maybe for some of you, this is like your first time ever coming to church. And it's like this, this dying gasp of, of air, maybe here, maybe this. But this thing just plagues you. And can you imagine if somebody named that? If somebody said to you, God told me, this is what you're going through. This is what's happened in your life. I mean, it would send shivers down your spine. It would freak you out, but would also tell you that something is happening here, that God is doing something. It may remove some of the doubts in your life. It may, in fact, bring you to a place of bringing it into the light in the name of Jesus and receiving forgiveness and healing. And this is why Paul says, desire this gift. 
He says, eagerly desire the greater gifts in chapter 12. Chapter 14, he starts out by saying, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Desire this gift especially because this gift has the unique ability to cut through the hardness of the human heart. It has the unique ability to, to cut through all that callousness and to do in a moment what would otherwise take maybe years to do. This gift has the unique ability to encourage and to comfort and to convict and to draw people near. So eagerly desire this gift. Seek it. Ask for it daily. Grow in your sensitivity to the voice of the Spirit. You know, there, there are going to be barriers in our life. Sin that hasn't been dealt with. That, that, that kind of blocks the voice of God in our lives. Deal with that stuff. Grow in your sensitivity to the Spirit. And practice this gift. Immerse yourself. A few tips from Sam's stories. Immerse yourself in God's Word so that you know when it is God's voice or not, so that you can actually test it. Test it with other people. Um, learn from others who are operating in this gift. But the bottom line is, practice it. Step out in faith. You may need to, to go up to somebody. And, and I think when I, I have received words of prophecy, and, and I've appreciated it when people do it humbly. When they say, hey, I think this is something I have heard from God. And, and they speak something about, about what's, what's happening now or what's going to happen. And they say, I could be wrong, but I think this is from the Lord. I, I personally appreciate that. Somebody's not kind of declaring it, but is saying, look, I, I think I've heard this from, from the Lord. But step out in faith and, and practice this gift because it has immense capability to draw people near to Jesus. Last week, I, I finished with... Um, this emphasis on, on building one another up. This is our goal when we come together. But today, I, I want to I emphasize again the, the calling we have for, for mission. As a church, we are not a social club. We're not here just to kind of see good friends and then to endure some long talk together and then, uh, and then enjoy uh, subpar McDonald's Keurig coffee afterwards. That's not what we're here for. We, we are here because we have a mission, because we have a calling. We have a responsibility. God has told us you are to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has, has commanded us. That's our mission, to make disciples. And the world desperately needs this. The world needs to know Jesus, because look around. Look, look, at the, look at the brokenness in our world. Look at the addiction. Look at the, the depression and the anxiety and the hopelessness that exists in our world. And in the midst of all of that, even as the world seems like it, it falls apart at the seams, generally speaking, people are not turning to Jesus. I heard uh, the lead researcher of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada say just this past week that they've been tracking church attendance uh, and engagement for about 80 years. And it's been in decline in Canada for 80 years. But in the last two years, the years of the pandemic, they have seen 20 years of decline in two years. What, what was happening, drastically accelerated by COVID. Already in 2011, he said the largest group, largest religious group of people in Canada were the nuns, not the NUNS. There aren't that many nuns 
walking around, but the N-O-N-E-S, those who, who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. That is the largest single group, religious group in Canada. And when we see the statistics from the 2021 census, I would suspect that has probably only increased. And so the world needs this, isn't looking for it. And I know that the bridge is, is, is somewhat of an exception. Along with other churches to this, we've actually seen growth. But that only makes the onus on us that much greater. Th that we have this responsibility. That we have this calling to share the good news with the world. That there is hope. There is life. There is healing. We have this good news. It's ours to share. And his name is Jesus. This is the hope that the world has and it doesn't know it. And so it's our calling to share it. And we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We can't do this on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need these gifts. We need the Holy Spirit to work through us. But here's the thing. You can have gifts and you can use them in all the wrong ways. You can use them to build yourself up. You can use them to actually alienate people from Jesus. I don't know, when I see videos of uh, street preachers who are just yelling at people, confronting people, I think, yeah, you've got a gift to preach and you're racking up YouTube views, but I don't know what good that in the end is accomplishing. I don't know if people are being drawn to Jesus or just writing the whole thing off. You can use spiritual gifts to alienate people or to draw them near to Jesus. So I urge you, as I have urged over and over again in this series, seek the gifts, desire them, pray for them, fast for them, and then use them to build one another up and make Jesus known in this world. Lord, you have given us good news. The best news, Lord, that where we were without hope in the world and cut off from you, that you spoke your very clear word in Jesus Christ to us, the living word of God. You came to us, you showed us, Lord, what, what God is like. You, you showed us, Lord, how we were to live and, and then you gave your life at the cross in our place. Lord, you have, you have spoken this clear word of salvation and redemption and, and adoption into the family of God. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint us. That you would, that you would awaken the gifts you have already given us and that you would give us yet more gifts, Lord, to make you known. And may this be our, our desire, Lord. May it be our heart. That our, our longing, Lord, would be to see the world around us know you and trust in you and, and find life and hope in you. Lord, that we would not grow complacent, that we would not become inward focused, but Lord, that you would give us the same heart that you yourself have. Lord, that we would share the good news, that we would eagerly desire, Lord, to be used by you, to be your instruments, to make the gospel known in this world. Holy Spirit, again, we pray, come, fill us, anoint us. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. 
If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.